After an eight-week break, we're back in the book of Judges this morning. I am glad and excited to be so. As we now turn to worship our God through hearing His Word preached. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 6. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. The next judge that we come to today is a very well-known one. Most likely you've heard of him before, Gideon. He is one of the most central characters in the book of Judges. It's noteworthy that we saw how the author devotes just five verses to Othniel, the judge, the first judge. Shamgar only gets one verse, but Gideon gets three chapters, and it even spills over into a fourth. He's a central figure. He's a complex figure, and so we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at his story. But today, Judges chapter 6, we're going to begin by looking at how God prepares him to deliver Israel. And to begin with, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10, as we will come back and read the rest of the chapter as we make our way through it. So Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Join me in listening to God speak to us through His Word. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian several seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. It would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And the people of And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent them, sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Amen. Bow with me again as we ask God's blessing upon the preaching. Oh, Father, although these men, these people, this nation has long been dead, through the preservation of your word, they still speak. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bring your word alive in our hearts, even now. We pray that you would do so, that you might be rightly worshipped and adored and obeyed. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I mentioned before, chances are you have heard of Gideon. And when you hear the name Gideon, 
there's a good chance that you probably think of a mighty man. Gideon, a strong warrior, a conqueror for God's people. In many respects, this is because this is the name, excuse me, the, the legend, the reputation of Gideon and what he's taken on in modern days in our popular Christian culture. Gideon, of course, is the name of that warrior, the one who goes out and conquers for God, the one who trusts in God. And if you look at him in the context of the book of Judges, it's clear to see that he really seems to be one of the good guys. He's one of the the bright spots in the chaos and the evil of Judges. He's a humble man, right? He refused to be made king in the end. He's a believing man, one who trusts as God whittles his army down to just 300 men to to fight thousands and thousands. And of course, you know, as we think about this, there is some legitimacy to this. Gideon is mentioned in the Hall of Fame of of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He's one who is described as an example of faith, as a hero of the Old Testament one who trusts in God's promises. However, like so many of our heroes, when we look closer, we realize that they also had feet of clay. When we look just below the surface, as with so many of our heroes, we realize they're not quite as pristine as we would often like them to be. In fact, as I was thinking about Gideon, I thought about how in our day, heroes, particularly in storytelling, comic books, superhero movies, heroes are often now portrayed, in contrast to previous generations, as flawed, as complex. Particularly in the comic book and superhero genre of movies. So often the movies of of superheroes focus just as much on the personal demons that they face as they do the evil villains that they have to destroy. I thought, for example, of one of my favorite movies to watch with my son, Riley, uh, Lego Batman. If you've seen that, it's a classic, but... You know, it focuses not so much the Joker and the villains aren't really, you know, the tension, the plot line of the movie. The plot line is that this hero is a pretty despicable human being. He's self-focused. He's vainglorious. And so what he really needs to be saved from is himself. Well, that's the storyline we find in Gideon as well. Yes, he he is a judge, he is a warrior, he is a hero, he is one who sets forth for us a model of true faith. But when we look closer, this story is just as much, if not more, about Gideon's sin and unbelief than it is about him delivering Israel from the Midianites. Brethren, this is something that ought to deeply resonate with us. Gideon is a man of true faith, a child of God, but at the same time, his faith was as fickle as the weather. He struggled mightily to believe God, to trust God's Word. He was continually hounded with with 
propensity for idolatry, for greed, for sexual lust. Each time success is brought upon him, he's quick to chase after the glory for himself. And ultimately, at the end of the day, his own personal quest for personal pride ends up being his real lasting memory. This ought to resonate with us because in Gideon, we get a picture of Israel as a whole. Faithful and believing one moment, stumbling and idolatrous the next. Humble and begging for God's help when they're in need. Self-glorifying and forgetful of God in times of prosperity. And in the same way, we get a little picture of ourselves as well. With all the ups and downs of the Christian life. So here today, I want you to see, first and foremost, Gideon's struggle to believe God. I want you to see his weak and faltering faith, and yet his true faith. And I want you to see ultimately how God's condescending love towards this frightful servant is demonstrated, and how God delights to show his power through human weakness. So, to walk through this passage, we're going to consider four observations today. Four observations. The first is this. God's first act of salvation is to send a prophet. God's first act in salvation is to send Israel a prophet. We just read in verses 1-6 through a familiar cycle of the book of Judges, a repeated pattern that that happens over and over again. Uh, The end of verse 5, the land had rest for 40 years. But what happens? Well, as before, the people of Israel again disobey. The anger of the Lord is again kindled. He sends again another nation in His sovereignty to punish them. They respond by crying out in anguish, anguish, not necessarily to God, but just crying out. We're miserable. And the Lord is again moved to compassion. And this starts again, this chain reaction of His deliverance of them. Here, in this particular cycle, we see an old foe, Midian, who were a people that were far south of Israel. And essentially, they um, partner with the Amalekites and the people of the east. And what they're doing is they're exploiting Israel economically. We read of this in verses 2-5. through five. They, they pillaged Israel's livelihood. Israel would plant crops, which of course, you know, in an agrarian society, that's life right there. You spent most of your time planting and cultivating crops. But when these crops would start to bear fruit, to bear a harvest, the enemy would come in and they would steal everything. And they would steal their animals too. And they would plunder their homes. And this went on for seven long years. You can imagine how incredibly frustrating this must have been. Every year you're, you're working, you're toiling to provide for your family. And every year these enemies would come in like locusts and take everything that you worked for. In fact, to survive, to even escape with your own life, you had to flee to the hills and to the caves, as it says here. Bring all your family. Bring whatever you can grab along the way. And from this 
place, this fortress of security, you can look down and see the people sweeping over the land and taking everything that you worked for. You know, this would be like if China or Iran or somebody invaded America every year in December and plundered your year-end profits. Everything that you'd worked hard for. Just plunder you and take whatever they want. So you can imagine then that, as the author says here, Israel was brought very low. This is a massive understatement. They're without provision. They're without peace. They're without security. All of their hard work in life is going to feed the bellies of their enemies. People who hate God. People who worship false gods. But as we look at this, we ought to, of course, remember the big picture. The big picture is that Israel is getting exactly what God told them they would get if they broke covenant with Him. For example, Deuteronomy 28-29, and detailing the curses of Israel if they broke the covenant. God says, You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. The pillaging in verse 2 through 5 should be no surprise. It's a fulfillment of the exact thing that God details would happen if they turned away from the Lord. Israel had fallen under the curse of the Mosaic covenant because of their disobedience. And so, for our purposes, once again, we should see that Israel is shown to be sinful beyond measure. Israel's unable to live up to God's law. And this is illustrative of how all of us, by nature, are unable to live up to God's law and deserve judgment. But once again, the Lord shows mercy. The Lord hears their cries of pain. We see this in verse 7 through 10. And he responds. How does he respond? He sends them a prophet. A prophet. Think about this. This would have been the last thing in the world that they would have wanted, right? They're oppressed, they're robbed, they're tormented, they're plundered, they're starving, they're in great need, and instead of seeing help, sending help, God sends them a preacher? Not deliverance from oppression, not a savior. What a sermon! This is like sending a philosopher when the house is on fire. What good is that going to do me now? So, oh, you're going to kick me when I'm down? You're going to come and preach to me now? Can't you see I'm dying here? <clears throat> Brethren, when we consider this, this is actually a beautiful thing. Not only is it beautiful, but it's characteristic of how God always acts in redemptive history. This shows us that God is concerned, for, first and foremost, for their real needs. For the root issue of their hearts, rather than simply the comfort of their lives. Sure, a philosopher may not be able to fight the fire that's engulfing your home, but perhaps he can pinpoint the reason that that fire began so that it doesn't happen again. 
So take it in this context, we realize here, as we've seen before, Israel's crying out is not true repentance. It's just pain and desperation because they're miserable. They're crying out because of their circumstances are so hard. Not because they're convicted. Not because they truly want redemptive salvation. And so God sending a prophet is an act of great mercy. He wants to reveal to them the root issue of why they're being oppressed. And brethren, in this way, we can see that God's ways haven't changed nowadays, even thousands of years later. When we're faced with hardship, when we're faced with difficulty, when we're faced with trouble, we too often want nothing more than to, for God just to deliver us from our circumstances. For God to, to fix everything. But God wants us to rightly understand our circumstances. God sends us His Word to show us what's truly going on in our hearts. So that the root issue is most important. It is dealt with first and foremost. All of God's dealings with us as the children of God aim at rooting out the desire of sin within our hearts. He aims to heal the disease, not just the symptom. God purposes a holy people. God purposes a fruitful people. Thus, it is a grace to be brought under the criticism of His Word. It is a mercy for us, for Him to reveal who we really are deep down. God then here seeks to put Israel, excuse me, seeks to put Himself back on the throne of Israel's heart. And He does the same to us as well. Let us then seek God's face in His Word when trouble comes. Let us seek the root issue of our sin and what's going on in our hearts and our minds and what's, what, what really is the root issue of our circumstances. And let us hear the Word of God. Not just coming to sermons each week, not just hearing the preacher, but making every endeavor to receive it, to believe it, to obey it. So before God acts in salvation, He sends a prophet to tell them why they need to be saved and to prepare them for what comes next. And He does the same in our day as well. This leads to our second observation. After sending a prophet... God promises deliverance through His abiding presence. God promises deliverance through His abiding presence. Let's look at the commissioning of Gideon. Read with me here, verses 11 through 24. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joas the Abezerite, and while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, 
Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you, and bring out my present, and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat, and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put into a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened cakes. The angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Afra, which belongs to the Abezerites. Right away, we should notice that God's mercy is on display here. It's like big flashing lights, really. Because think about how the previous verse ended, verse 10. You have not obeyed my voice. And in the very next verse, the angel comes down to talk with Gideon. And and that's not really what we'd expect, is it? We'd expect something like, you have not obeyed my voice, therefore, this judgment I'm bringing upon you. But that therefore never comes. There's no pronouncement of judgment. Mercy follows instead. So here we have the angel of the Lord appear. The angel of the Lord, as we see down in verse 22, is actually Yahweh Himself. This is a theophany, a, 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 an appearance a visible manifestation of God in this realm, created realm. And most specifically, I think we should see this as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It shows us that Christ was active in the Old Testament. It shows us that the Old Testament is Christian Scripture. But Yahweh comes down, while Gideon, verse 11, is described as threshing wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And what's funny about this account is that the Lord addresses him as Gideon, mighty man of valor. You see, this is an intentional attempt to be humorous or sar- sarcastic or ironic. Because threshing a, a wheat in a wine press is perhaps the most inefficient way possible to do such a task. Gideon is only doing so because he fears the Midianites. He's essentially cowering in the corner out of fear, and yet the Lord comes to him and says, Oh, mighty man you are. Clearly, Gideon is not a man of courage when the Lord approached him 
and called him. But it is a foreshadowing of who Gideon would be when the Lord clothed him with power. So the angel comes, and this purpose here is to commission Gideon for the task. But what's noteworthy is that this account, this interaction here, parallels in very specific ways uh, the calling of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God appears to them both as they're doing a common, ordinary agricultural task. Fire is included in both accounts, the burning bush and the staff. Both Moses and Gideon ask God for signs, two signs of assurance. Likewise, Moses says, I'm inadequate. He has to be excused. Can't you get somebody else? Gideon, too, says the very same thing. Verse 15, my tribe's the weakest. I'm the youngest son. Aren't there better men for the job? But the most striking parallel is what the angel says to Gideon in verse 16, which happens to be the same thing that God told Moses in Exodus 3.12. When Gideon objects, the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. I will be with you. Brethren, there is a world of hope and comfort in those words. I will be with you. How easy is it, like Gideon here, to assume that when trouble comes, when life is miserable, that God has abandoned us. That's actually what Gideon says. If you look here in verse 13, he tells the angel, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, like, are you kidding me? If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? The Lord's not with us. The Lord has abandoned us. Don't you see, Mr. Angel of the Lord? You're with us? Is that why I'm secretly threshing grain in a wine press? Is that why they come down every year to pillage us? Because you're with us? Are you kidding me? Gideon here shows a complete lack of awareness of his sin, of Israel's sin, of the covenantal judgment that God told them would come upon them. But most importantly... What he doesn't realize is that his suffering is not because God has abandoned his people. But his suffering was because God loved them enough to chasten them and bring them to their senses. Rather than the same is true for you and me as well. If you are a child of God through faith in Christ... Just like Gideon, it's easy for us to see bad circumstances as if God has left us and to see the only relief as a fixing of our circumstances. But sometimes God's hand is more evident in our hardships than it is in our comforts. And right when circumstances are so bad, that we think God has abandoned us, He's actually right in the middle of His greatest work in us. And this is because of His undying love for us and His refusal to hand us over to the idols that we crave. God is with them. 
And this is what the angel comes to remind Gideon of and to give him that assurance. God is with you. And we have the same assurance in the gospel that God is with us. And that is all that we need. God doesn't tell us when or how or where He will deliver us from hardship. But He does give us that promise. I am with you. And He gives us that promise based upon Jesus Christ and His work for us in His life and death on the cross. I want you to notice how this account with Gideon foreshadows that hope that we have in the Gospel. Right here in verse 17, right after God promises to be with him, Gideon asks for a sign. How do I know this, Lord? And so what follows is this miraculous account where, where through the staff torching the meat, the meal is turned into a sacrifice. The, uh, Gideon then sees, okay, I've seen the Lord. And that's when the Lord says, peace be with you, don't fear. And then so much so that Gideon is confident so that he can build an off altar and say, and call it, the Lord is our peace. And brethren, all of this foreshadows the work of Christ in the gospel because Jesus Christ is that sign that God has given us. He is that sacrifice foreshadowed by this sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God taken, uh, who takes away the sin of the world. He is our peace with God because He atoned for our sin and has restored peace with God, having removed our iniquities. And on the basis of this, the Lord has poured out His Spirit, clothed us with His Spirit, as we'll see is, is said of Gideon here in just a moment. And this is the Lord with us. So with Gideon, we get a foreshadowing of what comes to us in the Gospel. And Gideon is thus, is thus empowered to fight the enemies of God in the same way through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are empowered to overcome our idolatry, to overcome our sinfulness, to overcome the enemies that wage war against our soul. This is God's promise to give deliverance through His presence. And this is our confidence that we have. And this is our call to look to the sign that God has given us. Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, the one who is our peace. Well, the story continues from here, and this brings us to our third observation from this passage. Thirdly, God's salvation begins by dealing with the root issue of sinfulness. God's salvation begins by dealing with the root issue of sinfulness. Here, read with me verses 25 through 32. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah, Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. 
When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal, which is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So here we have the mighty man of valor, too scared to obey in daylight, but he does obey by night. And it's striking here as we consider this, that it's Gideon's father who had this altar to Baal. Because we we see, okay, there's Baal worship in the family, but also we know that Gideon uh, knew something about Yahweh because he recounts the history of Israel. He recounts the Exodus to the angel of the Lord. And when we look at it this way, we realize what the issue was. The ultimate problem was not that Israel abandoned Yahweh. The problem was that they combined the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. So the call of the angel of the Lord here is just like the call to us as well. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and Baal. You cannot serve God in the things of this world. Thus, because of this syncretic idolatry, there must be a cleansing. There must be a purification before the Lord would come and destroy their enemy and restore their rest in the promised land. Brethren, God seeks to rule every area of their lives. Just the same with us. God is not satisfied until He rules every area of your life. Gideon here, true to his name, chops down the altar because his name literally means hewer or chopper. And then he's renamed to Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend against him. Baal then is mocked once again. The author exposes Baal uh, in this book uh, to be the lifeless, helpless idol that he truly is. Yahweh again gains the victory and is glorified. But the issue that I want you to see, God first deals with the root issue of sin before He brings deliverance to Israel. And this again points us to Christ. God deals with the root issue of sin on the cross, which is then applied to our hearts through faith. And from this flow His further works of redemption. In Colossians 2.15, we read that on the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Christ chopped down the false idols of this world. And it's from this root applied to us that we are then enabled to put sin to death. 
It's from this root applied to us, worked out in us, that one day He will return again and usher us into that eternal land of promise. As He is coming again to complete the work that He began. If we too are to obtain that ultimate deliverance, that this life in the land foreshadowed, we too need a greater Excuse me, we too need a Gideon. We need a greater Gideon. We need Christ to come and chop down the altars of idolatry in our hearts. Well, then, this leads us then to our conclusion. God begins that salvation, God deals with the root issue. And fourth and finally, for our purposes today, We'll conclude by considering God's long-suffering patience towards the weak in faith. God's long-suffering patience towards the weak in faith. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan. Excuse me, let me back up here. Beginning in verse 33, we'll read through verse 40. Beginning in verse 33. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called to follow him. And he, went, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. They went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all, on all the ground there was dew. Well, this gives us the lead up into the great battle, which we will consider next week. But for our purposes today, I want to point out just a couple of things in conclusion. The first is here in verse 34, we get this beautiful statement of God clothing Gideon. Clothing Gideon. This is his presence being with him. This clothing motif is really deep in Scripture. It's a beautiful thing when we trace it out. Adam and Eve, in, in their uh, creation, had a glory covering of some sort to hide their nakedness. Moses descended from the mountain, physically glowing, having been clothed with God's majesty. Aaron, the high priest, wore vestments, this beautiful arraignment, perhaps symbolizing the unfallen glory of humanity in the garden. John borrows from the description of Aaron's robes to describe Jesus as the glory of God incarnate in Revelation chapter 1. Saints are said to be clothed in righteous deeds, pure and bright. We clothe ourselves with the full armor of God. We put on the image of the new man in Jesus Christ. 
All of these things come together in this statement here that, that Gideon was clothed with the Spirit and being clothed with the Spirit, he imaged God by taking dominion, by ruling as God's agent, as a messenger of the Lord to fight the enemies of the Lord. This is a recalling of Adam's original commission, but a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who was clothed with the glory of His Father as He pursued death on the cross, His obedience, and conquered through His resurrection and was raised in glory. But notice, even though God clothes Gideon, promises him deliverance in the battle, What happens right before the battle? He hesitates. He's unsure. He struggles to really believe God's Word. This is where we get this famous do test. Right? Fleece. What's going on here? How do we interpret this? Was this a legitimate thing for Gideon to do? Was he just being cautious? Is is this something that we can imitate in our day? To find out the will of God? It's very unfortunate that many people have interpreted it this way. As if this was a good thing to do. As if it was a legitimate thing to do. As if it was a thing that we can do ourselves. This despite the fact that the law forbids us from putting God to the test. This is despite the fact that Jesus Himself, seemingly speaking to this very event, says that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But what I want you to see is that the criteria for this test is not at all arbitrary. Remember that Baal was the rain god. His specialty was rain, which was needed for life in that um, Um, That climate, desert climate. His specialty was precipitation. And his weakness was in the absence of rain and dew. And in fact, one of his daughters in the mythology is named Dew. So far from being this away Gideon is asking God for help to make a difficult decision, far from giving us a pattern by which we can then test God, Rather, it shows us just how deeply rooted Baal worship was in his heart and in Israel as a whole. Gideon's father had altars to Baal, and Gideon himself won't go into battle until he knows that Yahweh is greater than Baal. Gideon then, with this do test, is is asking Yahweh to prove that he truly is the force of nature. That he truly is mightier than Baal. And in this respect, it is an embarrassing illustration of his weak faith. This is not an indication that he believed God's word. This is not something that's commendable. This is essentially a failure of the most fundamental test of true faith to believe what God has said and to take God at His word. But how does God respond? But by showing unfathomable mercy. He condescends to meet Gideon in his weakness. 
He acquiesces to Gideon's poor faith. He demonstrates his power in Baal's fear. And through this due test with the fleece and the wool, Gideon can march forward knowing that Baal is nothing and Yahweh is everything. Brethren, what kind of God is this? Who can fathom the depths of His mercy and His long-suffering and His patience with those who are weak and faltering and inconsistent in our faith? Brethren, at the end of the day, Gideon is a man who is worth emulating in his faith. But ultimately, he's deeply flawed, isn't he? And in his own struggle to believe God, what we see rise above everything else in this story is God's infinite patience and love. What a comfort that we can take away from this. The comfort not in how strong our faith is, but how strong the object of our faith is, Jesus Christ. If you think about Jesus Christ, our ultimate deliverer, He too was tempted to put God to the test. Satan appeared to Him in the wilderness. You've been without food 40 days and 40 nights. God doesn't care about you. Your Father is going to let you perish. He's forgotten you. So turn these stones into bread and and do it yourself. Jesus responded and said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where Gideon failed, Christ accomplished. And thus, it's in Christ's perfect faith in His life that we find rest and strength for our weak and faltering faith. And thus today, let us take courage. When we feel ill-equipped to serve God, when we feel inadequate in our faith, God delights to use weak and worthless people in the eyes of the world to accomplish and to demonstrate His power and His might. As Psalm 147.10 says, The Lord's delight is not in the strength of the horse, His pleasure is not in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, those who hope in His unfailing love. Brethren, this is the God of Gideon and the salvation that He is pleased to work to those who are weak and worthless in the eyes of the world. All of this points to Christ. All of this points to the hope that we have in the Gospel. And thus, let us take comfort today. Let us find our strength today in Him. Let us ask God to work in us that true inward beauty of grace and humility and reliance upon Him, His power and His strength. Those things that are given to us freely through the Gospel, through Christ's benefits secured and given to us by faith. Amen. Let's pray.